Jeff, praise team, thank you for leading us to the throne this morning. My name's Eric. It's an honor and a privilege, as always, to be with you this morning. It's a privilege for my wife and kiddos to get to join me this time as well. And If you've got your Bible with you this morning, and hope that you do, I would encourage you to be opening your Bible to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 33. As I was thinking about what I wanted to preach this morning, I was thinking about just some of the themes in my life that I am ready to live for and die for, hills that I am willing to stake a stand on and to die for. And one of those hills is the authority of the Word of God. There are some hills that I won't die on, but that one I will. God's Word has authority. All 66 books, every sentence, every word, from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. God's Word is authoritative. You ever wonder, is God speaking today? Absolutely He is. We only need open His Word. And He speaks to us. And so as I was thinking about what I wanted to preach this morning, that's the residue that I wanted to leave you with, the consummate, the all-consuming authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we see that loudly and clearly on great and magnificent display in the text that we'll turn our attention to this morning. Before we do that, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together as we consider His Word. Pray with me, would you? Father, we come this morning humbled by the fact that you would save desperate sinners such as us. You are our one defense. You're the only defense. You are our righteousness. You are the only righteousness that we could approach a thrice holy God with. Lord, we thank you for that. You saved us not because of righteous deeds done in our flesh, but because of your great mercy, because it pleased you to do so. Not because of us, but in spite of us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that this morning. We're humbled by that. We come to you humbled and contrite in spirit and trembling at your word. Lord, as we do this morning, would you leave us just astounded? Would you leave us awestruck by the consummate authority of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Father, bless our time in your word. Help us to understand it. We pray that your spirit would help us to rightly divide it and that your spirit would help us to apply it. Lord, we want to come here this morning to worship you, but we want to come here to be changed by you as well. We want to behold your glory, and in beholding your glory, to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And so as we peer into your word, God, would you reflect back to us your holy nature? Would you show us something of our sinfulness? Would you cause us to cast ourselves upon the matchless mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? the one who has gone before us yet without sin, our great high priest, our advocate, the one who hung on Calvary's cross and bore our every sin and uttered those final words, it is finished for us. What authoritative words those were. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on January the 15th, 2003, the Wall Street Journal published an interesting article concerning thermostats in many corporate office buildings. According to this article, you could go back and check it for yourself, a growing number of companies have actually installed dummy thermostats in offices in an attempt to minimize employee complaints about the temperature, those complaints coming mostly from sweaty men and shivering women. As a matter of fact, some companies have even gone as far as to install white noise generators to mimic the low hum of the fan when the system's completely turned off. You see, those placebo thermostats, those placebo buttons, they do nothing more than give employees the illusion of control. But interestingly enough, that illusion of control seems to quell complaints. Many other placebo buttons give us the same false sense of satisfaction. Take the closed-door button on elevators, for instance. Well, according to the engineers at Otis Elevator, unless you're a fireman or an electrician, 
an elevator electrician, you can hang it up. That button's useless. It's a placebo button. It does nothing more than give you the illusion of control in most cases. Well, in the same way, we're oftenly mistaken and satisfied by the mere illusion of control. Our text this morning will expose the illusion that Israel's religious leaders, speaking namely of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, we'll meet them here in just a few moments, but the illusion that Israel's religious leaders posed ultimate control and authority. It was nothing more than an illusion. They thought they possessed ultimate control and authority until the Lord Jesus Christ stepped on the scene. You see, in our sin, we oftentimes resist Jesus' authority. But make no mistake about it, no one has ever walked the, pla- the, the face of the planet who has more authority and more freedom to exercise that authority than the Lord Jesus Christ. When he speaks and acts, he speaks with definitive, consummate authority. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And with that truth anchored in our minds, let's turn our attention to our text for this morning where Jesus will demonstrate clearly for us His authority, His superior, consummate, ruling, reigning authority over the religious leaders of His day. And I think in doing so, we will see something of His authority over us. And that ought to humble us before the mighty hand of the Lord. Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pins these words in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, then he, Jesus, will say, Then why did you not believe him? That being John. But if we say from man, for see, they were afraid of the people. They held or they knew that John really was a prophet. So their answer or their conclusion to Jesus was this. We do not know. And Jesus said to him, to them, neither then will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You know, it's been said that the characteristic of Jesus that left the most lasting impression on his followers and caused the greatest offense to his opponents was his sovereign freedom and magisterial authority. Let me rewind that statement for you. It has been said that the characteristic of Jesus that left the most lasting impression on his followers and created the most controversy among his opponents was his authority, his ruling, reigning, magisterial authority. Four times in our text for this morning, we see the word authority appear. It's the Greek word exousia. And aside from being translated authority, probably in most of your Bibles, it has the idea of liberty or power or competency or freedom, rule, control, reign. To speak about Jesus' authority is to speak about his unmitigated freedom to act or exercise his will at his will. No one can stop him. No one can stay his hand. Jesus commands all authority. Indeed, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, divested to him from his Father. But the authority of Jesus isn't only on display in the short section of Scripture which we'll consider this morning. We see Jesus' authority radiantly on display from the very outset of Mark's gospel. If you were to spend some time studying Mark's gospel, I think that Mark goes to great lengths to make that a main theme throughout his writing, the authority of Jesus. And here's how we see it. And we see it beginning in Mark chapter 1. Jesus amazes those that are gathered together in the synagogue. They stood perplexed as they watched him with great supremacy command a demon out of a tormented man. Jesus has authority over the demonic world. Jesus tells us that when he speaks, 
He speaks with authority. As a matter of fact, those that were there, Mark takes us back there, and I'll let you look at it here in just a minute, but Mark takes us back to this scene in Mark chapter 1, and this is what he says. Speaking of the people who saw Jesus, they said, and they were amazed, and so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? In other words, translation, what have we just seen? This man over here has just cast a demon out of a tormented man. And he speaks with authority, unlike our scribes and our, and our elders. What is this? A new teaching with authority, they ask? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Mark chapter 1, verse 27. But Mark's gospel is replete, again, with demonstrations of Jesus Christ's authority. Jesus claims and does what only God claims to do and can do. Here's just a few of those instances. Jesus forgives sin. Jesus heals sickness and disease. He knows the intentions and the thoughts of man's heart. He redefines the Sabbath in Mark's gospel. Not only that, but he claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. He binds the strong man in Mark chapter 3. He commands the wind and the waves and they obey him. He brings peace to the raging storm in a man's soul who was tormented by a demon. He restores life. He multiplies a few fish and a few loaves so as to feed thousands. He walks on water and then he turns to his fearful disciples who saw it and he said, fear not. And the actual translation in the Greek is, fear not, I am. Your translation says, fear not, I am with you. The Greek says, fear not, I am. Jesus was speaking to his disciples with authority. He commands people to hear him. He opens the ears of the deaf and he astonishes bystanders such that they, that they say he has done all things well. He gives sight to the blind. He transfigures himself in blazing light. He receives the adoration and worship that only God is due. And each time, 12 times as a matter of fact, in Mark's gospel, that Jesus Christ prefaces a statement by saying these words, Truly I say to you, Jesus presumes to speak with the authority of God. Every time, 12 times in Mark's gospel, that Jesus prefaces a statement saying, truly I say to you, he presumes to speak with the authority of God. The rabbis of Jesus' day would oftentimes quote others, what they had said, but Jesus had no need to quote others. The rabbis would say, you have heard that it was, say, that it was said. And Jesus would come along and he would say, well, you, had heard that, you have heard that it is said, but I say to you, he is ultimate, and when he speaks, he speaks with ultimate authority. You see, in our text this morning, we will come face to face with the one whom God has highly exalted. In these verses that we will look upon, we will look upon the one who has been given the name that is above every name. We will behold the one before whom every knee will one day bow. We will gaze upon the one to whom every tongue will one day confess Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the Jesus all by way of preface that we will see in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. That's the Jesus who has consummate, all-powerful authority over the religious leaders of the day, but by implication, brothers and sisters, also over your life and over my life. The first thing I want you to see this morning by way of outline is a suspicious examination. A suspicious examination. Look back at verses 27 and 28. Mark writes this, And as they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do them? Let me give you a little context as to where we're at here. It's been 24 hours or less since Jesus walked into the temple in Jerusalem and cleared the place out of its money changers and those who were selling and buying in the temple. The text that we're looking at this morning is just 24 hours, if that, on the tails of that particular event. Now dawn has broken on the Tuesday of Passion Week. Jesus will be crucified just a few days later. And Jesus and his disciples again return to the same temple that he just 24 hours ago cleared. 
You see, it's that temple in Jerusalem and all of its Herodian immensity and grandeur. I wish that I could take us back there so that we could see it. But that immense temple with its commanding view of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, it's that unrivaled historical theological temple that becomes the inevitable stage for the challenge to Jesus' authority. You know, it's interesting to note that Jesus revealed his authority in the most authoritative place in Israel, the temple, and in front of the most authoritative people, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the chief, the scribes, and the elders, the most authoritative religious governing body in the land. Well, let's look at these religious leaders here for just a second. Mark tells us that as Jesus was walking in the temple, he's confronted by chief priests, scribes, and elders. These are the three groups of individuals that composed the Jewish Sanhedrin. And it was the Jewish Sanhedrin that functioned as the official religious ruling body of the Jewish people. They were the guardians, so to speak, of Israel's religious life. Suffice it to say that this council was not comprised of entry-level positions. These men held high positions. They were stately. It was an imposing position. The way they dressed even signified it. I mean, Jesus was standing toe-to-toe with the, quote, religious authorities of his day. And their question is, who gave you the right to come into the temple with which we exercise all authority over and clear the place out? Who gave you the authority to do that? It's interesting to know that these three groups, the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders, they disagreed on major points of theology But they were certainly agreed on this point. Jesus Christ must go. He must go. They disagreed on other major points of theology, but they were in full agreement that Jesus must be done away with. Matter of fact, they were seeking to destroy him all the way back in Mark chapter 3. That's when the plot to kill him began. Why were they seeking to destroy him? Well, Mark's gospel tells us several times it's because they feared him. What did they fear? They feared his authority. They feared the authority that he exercised over them. And so they were seeking to kill him. The reason that they hadn't killed him yet, the plot beginning in Mark chapter 3, here we are in Mark chapter 11, the reason they hadn't killed him yet is because they had been seeking an appropriate time. In other words, they hadn't quite found the time when they could pin him down yet. And we know from Jesus' authority that he wasn't going out a day sooner than God had divinely, sovereignly planned. In other words, they couldn't take him early. Jesus Christ has all authority. But they were seeking the appropriate timing in which to destroy him because they feared him. They feared his authority. Look at the Sanhedrin's question to Jesus in the text. They ask, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Well, again, these things is in reference to Jesus clearing the temple. We see that back in chapter 11, verses 15 and 16. Mark writes it this way, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So when the Jewish religious leaders come to him and say, By what authority are you doing these things? These things refers to verses 15 and 16 when Jesus came and turned things upside down in the temple. Who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority is their question. You see, the Sanhedrin, this Jewish governing body, they viewed themselves and themselves alone as authorized by God to rule over the temple. And so when Jesus walks in and he pulls a stunt like he did yesterday, eyebrows are certainly furled, but so is blood pressure. These guys were hot. They were angry. They were mad. You see, the religious rulers viewed Jesus cleansing the temple as a direct affront to their authority, their perceived authority. Now, let me take you back to the Wall Street Journal opening. It was a placebo. It was the perceived notion of authority that these men held. But Jesus walks on the scene, and he shows them what true divine authority looks like when he clears the temple. Jesus had certainly ruffled feathers along the way in his ministry, but he had never done anything that so forcefully and publicly devastated the religious establishment as when he walked into the temple and he drove out the money changers and the merchants. 
And while all that's happening, if we can take ourselves back there for just a few moments, while all that's happening, those religious leaders, those rulers were apparently powerless to stop him and presumably even speechless as they're watching Jesus. But now that they've recovered from the initial shock, they were on the offensive and they demanded an explanation. They demanded to know who gave this untrained, unrecognized, uncredentialed, self-appointed rabbi from an obscure little city in the middle of nowhere the authority to disrupt the affairs of the temple. In other words, who does he think he is, is their question to Jesus. Jesus had no formal education, no formal ordination, no formal position, but yet his actions presumed divine authority. And not only that, but they presumed authority over the religious rulers of the temple. You see, the issue wasn't primarily what Jesus had done, though his actions certainly were under scrutiny, but rather what right did he have to do them? It wasn't so much what Jesus did, although that was under scrutiny. It was what right did you have to do what you did? What authority? Who gave you the authority to do it? You know, one of the things that I love, and I think this text so clearly illustrates is this. Jesus never asked for permission to do anything. Why? Why did Jesus never ask for permission? Because he didn't have to. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He has all authority. He needs ask for no permission. But the religious rulers, as they're watching Jesus act without their permission or apart from their granted authority, this was an incredible blow to their pride and their image amongst the people. It tarnished their illusion of control. And so they put him on pretrial. They put Jesus on pretrial, so to speak, by beginning to ask him a list of questions, beginning with what authority, by what authority, who gave you the right to do this? You see, it's interesting to note, though, that by asking Jesus to identify his authority, the religious rulers weren't looking for Jesus to give them any rabbinical credentials. They knew he didn't have that. Remember, they had all kinds of formal ordination. They had all kinds of official religious credentials. Jesus had none of that. And so when they asked Jesus the question, who gave you the right to do this? They're not asking for him to give them a list of credentials that he has. They know he doesn't possess that. They wanted Jesus to say, here's what they're trying to elicit from him. They want him to say, like he had said before, my authority comes from who? Say it. My father. That's what they're wanting him to say. They're wanting Jesus. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to trap him in his words here. They knew he had no official credentials. They knew he had no official ordination. They knew he was just an untrained, unschooled rabbi from an obscure little city in the middle of nowhere. And so what they want him to do is they want him to commit blasphemy. They want him to say publicly in front of everyone, my authority comes from my father. Because the minute that Jesus said that, they would have everything that they needed to take him and crucify him as a blasphemer. Which, by the way, was the charge that hung above Jesus' cross, wasn't it? Here hangs the king of the Jews. They weren't agreeing with him, by the way. They were mocking him. They had charged him with blasphemy. This man comes presuming to speak with the authority of God. Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is to speak like that and to do what he has done? But Jesus, the one with all authority, he's smarter than that. You see, the religious establishment, they had already written Jesus off as being of Satan. Remember when he cast the demon out of a man earlier on in Mark's gospel? We see it in, in several of the uh, synoptic gospels. When Jesus cast the demon out, they look at him and they say, who, who is this? He's of Satan. He cast demons out by, by Satan himself. He's, he's a demon. They had already written Jesus off as a devil, so to speak. But these guys will soon learn that they have instigated a massive confrontation with no ordinary rabbi. They'll learn that here soon. But I think the first thing that we see in our text this morning by way of outline is we see a suspicious examination. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders asking Jesus, who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority? Who do you think 
you are, examining him. I think the second thing that we see in our text is this, a scandalous question. A scandalous question. Look at verses 29 and 30 with me for a moment. Mark writes this, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's Jesus' question to the religious leaders. He says, was the baptism of John from heaven or was it from man? Answer me. Interesting here. Jesus is exerting some of his authority. The religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, we have a question for you. And Jesus turns the table and he says, no, I have a question for you. And twice did you see it in the text. Jesus commands them with all authority, answer me. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I have done what I have done. This is a scandalous question. You see, the religious leaders wanted nothing more than to expose Jesus as a messianic pretender. But Jesus, knowing their intentions to try to trap him, he answers their question with a question of his own. And that was common in Jesus' day. As a matter of fact, that's the way rabbis would oftentimes answer questions. They would answer a question with a question. And so the way that Jesus is operating here is customary of a rabbi in his day. It's not a diversionary tactic. Jesus isn't being evasive or trying to play fast and loose with their question. He's not trying to get away from it or get out of it or squeeze away from it in any way he didn't have to. Jesus telling these religious leaders, listen, I'll ask you a question. He wasn't evading the issue. He didn't have to. Remember, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. We need not forget that. Jesus wasn't trying to squirm away from their question. As a matter of fact, Jesus had explicitly answered their question countless times before. We see it over and over in the Gospels. I'll take you to a few places. You don't need to turn there. But once in John chapter 5, Jesus said this. He said, I have come in my Father's name. That's pretty clear, isn't it? You want to know where my authority comes from? That was all the way back in John chapter 5. My authority comes from my Father. Likewise, in John chapter 12, Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but my Father who sent me, he himself has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. You want to know where my authority comes from? I've already said that. I've already told you that. What you're doing here in Mark chapter 11 is you're just trying to pin me up against the wall in front of everyone in the temple to get me to say one last time in public in front of everyone, my authority comes from God that you might have every last ounce of reason you need to charge me with blasphemy, crucify me, and get me out of the way, which has been your desire since Mark chapter 3. Why? Because you fear my authority. Jesus' authority is consummate, all-reigning, all-powerful authority. You see, the source of Jesus' authority was no secret. If the religious rulers answered Jesus' question, remember Jesus' question was, where did John's baptism originate? Heaven or was it from man? If the religious leaders, if they answered Jesus' question, Jesus would by implication answer their question. In other words, Jesus' question to the religious leaders would answer their question to him. And the question was simple. The baptism of John. What was its source? Was it from heaven or was it from man? You see, everything the religious leaders needed to know about Jesus could be summed up in one event. The baptism of John. Mark writes concerning that event. He takes us back there in Mark chapter 1, and he pins this. He says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. Remember that little obscure city in the middle of nowhere that that uncredentialed man came from? Well, it's Nazareth. They came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he, Jesus, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he, Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens beginning to open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. God the Father spoke audibly. If anybody needed to know, if anybody had any question where Jesus' authority came from, it came when God opened the heavens and spoke audibly. And he said, this is my Son in whom I love, and in him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. If we ever had a question about where Jesus' authority came from, it came when God opened the heavens and spoke audibly and told us. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to note, if you were to go back and do some study at John's baptism in some of the Gospels, it tells us that some of the religious leaders were there. They were there. They were standing on the shores of the Jordan River when Jesus was baptized and God opened the heavens and spoke audibly concerning his son. 
But yet here they are trying to pin him up against a wall in Mark chapter 11. They might charge him with blasphemy. Everything the religious leaders needed to know could be summed up in that one event, the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or was it from man? Because it was there that the Father publicly declared the authority of Jesus Christ as God the Son. You see, these men, these religious leaders, they were standing before the Lord of the temple in Mark chapter 11. Notice that Jesus only gives them two options. It's not a hard test, A or B, circle one. Was the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from man? Oh, did Jesus ever place these religious leaders on the horns of an incredible dilemma in his question here. You see, if they answered from heaven, then they would incriminate themselves for not believing John and supporting his ministry, right? They would stand self-condemned for rejecting God's messenger, the very forerunner of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, they'd be forced to acknowledge that Jesus' authority did, in fact, come from God. So they couldn't say it came from heaven because they would incriminate themselves. But likewise, if they answered it came from men, they would have denied that John was commissioned by God, and they would discredit themselves before the people. And, oh, they loved the praise of people. Let me press pause there real quick. The same thing that got these men in trouble, loving the praise of men rather than the praise of God, doesn't that oftentimes get us in trouble? How many ships has that sunk? When we become all too eager, we fall all too much in love with the love and the praise of men rather than the praise of God. You see, that's what's got these men on the horns of a dilemma in the first place. They've got to protect their image. They've, they've got to posture themselves in such a place so that they don't lose their reputation with the people. So they, they can't say from heaven, but yet they can't say from men either because most of the people standing there really believed that John the Baptist was a prophet. And so they feared not only Jesus' authority, his consummate, all-reigning, ruling, supreme authority, but they feared the people as well. Because the people, if these religious leaders confessed that John's baptism was from men, the text says that they would stone these religious leaders. You see, the point here is that John and Jesus are a package deal. If you affirm the authority of John, you have to affirm the authority of Jesus. You can't do away with Jesus without doing away with John. And the religious leaders knew they couldn't do that. And their image hung in the balance. So what do they do? Well, that's number three on your outline if you're taking notes this morning. There's a suspended judgment in our text. A suspended judgment. Look at verses 31 through the first phrase of verse 33. Mark writes this, And they, that's the religious leaders, discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, then he, Jesus, will say, Then why did you not believe him? Which, by the way, is exactly what Jesus would have said. Then why didn't you believe John? But if we say from man... For they were afraid of the people, for they all held, that is the people, all held that John really was a prophet. And so what is their judgment? What is their conclusion? What is their verdict? It's agnostic. They reply, we don't know. We don't know. You see, as they began discussing, the Greek word there is literally as they began dialoguing amongst themselves, it became evident that they would be in trouble however they answered Jesus. They would be in trouble however they answered. It's like being asked the question, have you stopped abusing your spouse? If you answer yes, you're in trouble. If you answer no, you're in trouble. You see, in chess, we call this a fork. You're going to lose a piece no matter how you play. Jesus, with all wisdom, with all authority, knows exactly what he's doing. And so he asks them a question that puts them on the horns of a dilemma. And in doing so, he demonstrates his authority to these men. Can you see the picture unfolding now? Can you see the picture? If the religious rulers answered from heaven, they would have in turn been on trial before Jesus. He would have said, then why didn't you believe John? Why don't you believe his clear testimony about me? As a matter of fact, he pointed to me. He looked to me and said, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But if they had answered from men, they would have lost all credibility, what credibility they had with the people. You see, the praise of men meant everything to these guys. You see, they weren't asking the question, what is true or what is right? 
the religious leaders. They weren't asking the question, what is true or what is right? Do you know what question they were asking? What is safe? What is safe? As they discussed or dialogued among themselves, trying to come to a conclusion, trying to come to a verdict that was acceptable, the question they were asking themselves isn't what is true, isn't what is right, but what is safe? What is the safe answer? You know, has not our culture so deteriorated that that's where we're at today? The whole political correctness movement, by the way, is founded upon the premise of the fact that we have stopped asking the question, what is right and what is true, and we have begun to ask the question instead, what is safe? What is safe? And if we're not careful, we can buy into the very same lie. You see, instead of scrutinizing Jesus' theology, instead of scrutinizing his words and coming to the conclusion, this man really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they said, uh, what's the safe answer? We'll just give him that one, because that's easy. That doesn't cause any controversy. And it won't cost us our lives or our reputation either. And so we'll just give him, we'll just play it safe. We'll just give him the safe answer. See, Mark and this gospel describes the religious leaders, these very men that are standing in front of Jesus as prancing around in long robes looking for greetings in the marketplace and occupying the best seats in synagogues and having the best places of honor at feasts. And now they were exposed to the possibility of losing face before the very crowd they sought it from. And so how did they respond? We don't know. We don't know. See, here are the religious leaders who claim to be God's representatives, who claim to be God's appointed rulers over the temple, and yet Jesus, with one sweeping, authoritative question, exposes them as frauds. You see, here they were trying to expose Jesus as a messianic pretender, and Jesus, with one question, exposes them as frauds. You're not really trying to protect the temple. You're not really interested in the unadulterated worship of God. You're only interested in yourself. And so you ask the question, what's safe? How do I protect my image? And the answer, we don't know. Jesus exposes them as frauds. And here Jesus stands. That man, uncredentialed, not ordained, from a little obscure city in the middle of of nowhere, hadn't been officially appointed to any position, any religious position in the temple, didn't have authority conferred upon him by the religious establishment, but yet here he stands with all the authority of Yahweh. Look at Jesus' response to the religious leaders, agnostic, suspended judgment. Jesus looks at them and he says again with superior authority, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Number four on your outline, if you're taking notes this morning, is a superior authority. A superior authority. You know, some might say that the response of the religious rulers, that response of we don't know, that that response wasn't sufficient grounds for Jesus not answering their question. In other words, even though the religious leaders said, we don't know, Jesus still should have given them an answer. Some critics would say that. But the reality of the fact is this. These religious leaders, they weren't looking for an answer. They had no intention of following his teaching, even if he had told them. Their hearts were cold and hard. Every sincere and genuine question that was ever asked of Jesus got a sincere and genuine answer. Go back and look at the Gospels. Every sincere and genuine question that was ever asked of Jesus got a sincere and genuine answer. But when these men with hard, callous, cold hearts come and ask an insincere, an insincere question, Jesus says, I'm not going to answer your question." I'm not going to tell you, and really what he's saying is, I'm not going to tell you again where my authority has come from. I've already told you. I've already told you explicitly. You haven't even had to imply it. I've explicitly told you where my authority has come from. 
Jesus never withheld divine revelation from those who humbly sought it. It was only those who came with wicked motives that Jesus refused to answer. Let me ask you this question, brothers and sisters. Are you prepared? And I stand before the same question myself. Are you prepared to recognize God-given authority when you see it? Are you prepared to recognize God-given authority when you see it? Whether it's from your own devotional time as you're peering into the very revealed, written, authoritative, God-breathed Word of God. Or when it comes from a trustworthy brother or sister who are speaking clearly the Word to you. Are you you willing to recognize God-given authority when you see it? Let me interpret what Jesus is saying to the religious rulers here. When Jesus says this, when he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, here's here's really what Jesus is communicating. And these are heavy words. But what Jesus is really communicating is this. I'm finished communicating with you. You've been around. You've seen me work. You've heard me speak. You've seen my miracles. I've explicitly stated in front of you where my authority comes from. And so now... I speak to you no more, Jesus says. I'm finished communicating with you. You see, Jesus' words carry immense weight here. What he's saying to these guys is, you've you've seen divine revelation in the person and work of the Son. By the way, that's me, and you've rejected it. And in rejecting it, I am not answering your questions anymore. Friends, hear this. If you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ savingly, you've been exposed to the light. You've been exposed to it by being in close proximity to the Word of God. You've been exposed to it by being in close proximity to God's people. And there comes a point where if you continue repeatedly to to reject the light over and over and over and over, there comes a point where the light may go out. And Jesus communicates, then neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. Now, having said that, today is the day of salvation. The light is still on, praise the Lord. How do we respond then? Well, we stop rejecting the light and we respond in humble faith and repentance. That's the message of the cross. That's what Jesus went to the cross to die for, that men might repent of their sins. That's the command of Acts 17, that all men everywhere would repent and would turn to me. There is salvation found in no one else. There's one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to know who I am, God parted the heavens, and he conferred divine divine authority on me. I am God the Son in the flesh who came to this earth, born of a virgin, walked 33 years sinless, hung on a Roman cross as a broadcast anthem to the world. Salvation is available. Repent and believe. That's who I am. Now, if we go on rejecting the light over and over and over, the light's going to go out. The light's going to go out. Either our hearts become so hard that we just are impenitent and refuse to repent and believe, or we go out of this world apart from a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's hope. There's hope. Here's the hope. Believe while there's light. Believe while there's light. You see, the question of Jesus' authority, it wasn't just a question for first century scribes and Pharisees. It's the supreme question that every human being, including you and I, must come to terms with today. You see, let me bring some application to this. What does Jesus' authority mean for you and for me? We've seen what it meant to the religious leaders in Mark 11, 27 through 33, but what does it mean for you and for me today? Well, if you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, it means that you need to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Turn to him in simple, humble faith and repentance. You see, the reason that people reject Christ is because they place themselves over the authority of the Word of God. They trust their own reasoning rather than divine revelation. The fundamental question that each one of us must answer is this. Who is, not what is, we're talking about a person. Who is your ultimate authority? Who is your ultimate authority? Every single one of us must answer that question. 
Who is your ultimate authority? Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked of his disciples, and the same question is asked of us today. Who do you say that I am? You know, people love God everywhere except on his throne. We don't have a problem with God except when he's on his throne. Here's the problem. He's always on his throne. He's always on his throne. He's always exercising all authority. Christians, believers, let me ask you this question. Where might you be this morning resisting the authority of Jesus Christ that you instead need to submit to it? You see, we find it hard to think about authority in a positive light for one simple reason. It's because we're all sinners and we all want to be our own authority. Even as Christians, we struggle with that. We want to be our own authority, don't we? We don't want someone telling us what to do, when to do it, how to do it. We struggle with that. We all want to be the captains of our own lives. We want to govern our own futures. But God is holy and He's just and His word is true and it's trustworthy and He doesn't speak with a forked tongue. When He commands us, He commands us for our good and for His glory. As His adopted children and His subjects, we're called to submit to Him. We're called to trust Him and to obey Him. You see, brothers and sisters, not only are God's commands, not only are Jesus' commands an expression of his authority, but let me bring some encouragement to your soul this morning as we conclude. So are his promises an expression of his authority. Not only are his commands an expression of his authority, but so are Jesus' promises an expression of his authority. Let me give you a few. Are you here this morning and you're struggling with the assurance of forgiveness of sin? Well, if you're truly converted, Jesus Christ, the one in whom has all authority in heaven and on earth, he would say this to you. He would say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's what he would say to you if you're truly converted, but struggling with some assurance. How about this? Do you need assurance of his love? Well, Jesus Christ, the authoritative one, would speak these authoritative words to you, and he would say this. He would say, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hands. That's what he would tell you if you struggle with assurance of his love this morning. It's a promise, but it's a promise with authority, you see. How about this? Do you need assurance of his sanctifying grace that God really is going to complete or perfect that which he has started in you until the day of Jesus Christ? Do you need assurance that he's really going to do that, that he really is working in that redeemed, regenerated heart that beats within your chest? Well, then this is what Jesus, the one with all authority, would say to you this morning. He would say, be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will. It's not up for question. It's not up for debate. He will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. How about this? Do you need assurance in the midst of pain and suffering? Boy, in this world there is lots of trouble, but Jesus said, take heart, I've overcome the world, right? If you're struggling this morning with assurance and in the middle of pain and suffering, does God really know what he's doing? Is he really in control? Is he really sitting on his throne? Is he really taking care of me? Is he really working all things for my good? This is what Jesus Christ would communicate to your soul. He would say this. He would say, do not lose heart. Though your outer self is wasting away, your inner self, it's being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, it's very purposeful in your life. It's purposeful in preparing you for an eternal weight of glory that's far beyond all comparison. Don't forget that, oh, beloved one, he would say. And oh, while you're at it, beloved one, don't look at the things that are temporary. Don't, don't look at those things that are, that are here. Look at those things that are unseen. For things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. How about this? Do you need assurance that you'll endure until the end? 
if you know Christ saving you, that you really persevere until the end, well then to you Jesus Christ would authoritatively say this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. That's what he would communicate to you. How about this lastly? Do you need assurance that God knows what he's doing in your life? We all struggle with that, don't we? What, 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 are you, what are you doing here? I, 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 I trust you, but I, but I struggle in this flesh that I live in. Are, are, are you really working all things for my good and for your glory? Well, to you, weary saint, Jesus would authoritatively say this. He would say, I have declared the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purposes including all my purposes in your life. He would say to you, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. His commands are an expression of his authority. So are every promise that you read as you look through your Bible, as you study through your Bible, as you memorize and meditate on God's revealed word to us. You see, Jesus also communicated in an authoritative way a promise the very night before he was crucified. Tucked away in the solitude of a crowded little upper room, Jesus used these very meal elements that are before us to illustrate the gospel to his disciples. You see, he had chosen them, he'd taught them, he'd lived with them, he'd ministered with them, and now he would physically depart from them, but not without some final authoritative words. Paul records those words for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says this, the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after supper and he said to his disciples this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What are we remembering this morning? We're remembering that the eternal Son of God, the creator of the universe, the one who occupies the heavens and the earth, the one whose throne is in heaven, the one who is alone worshipped and adored by angels, he has offered himself in your place and in my place. He's offered himself freely and willingly and gladly to endure the judgment that your sin and my sin deserve. You know, I can't help but thinking about these words, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You see, friends, if you put your hope in Christ alone, our crucified, risen, and soon coming King, I want to invite you this morning to come as the Lord leads and to partake of this meal that we with great hope and anticipation eagerly await eating again at a table in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ himself.